This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to Poetry on the New Books Network. I'm Anna Zambalan, and I'm here with Mag Gabbert, poet and essayist and author of Sex, Depression, Animals, which is the collection we'll be talking about today. Mag's poems have been widely published in literary magazines, and she holds an MFA from UC Riverside and a PhD from Texas Tech. She lives in Dallas and teaches at Southern Methodist University. Sex, Depression, Animals, published by Mag Creek Books in 2023, was selected by Kathy Fagan as the winner of the 2021 Charles B. Wheeler Prize in Poetry. Sex Depression Animals is a collection in five parts, including animal and object poems intertwined with meditations on sex and language and a speaker's coming of age through traumas into adulthood. Thanks for joining me, Mag. Thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit about sex depression animals, maybe a quick introduction to the ideas, projects, or prompts that helped shape the poems and the collection overall. Sure. So, um, you know, this is my first full-length book, and I think like a lot of um, poets, initially when I started writing some of the earliest poems in this collection, I didn't really have a vision for what they might become. Um, I just tried to write the best poems I could. And then years down the line was able to take a look and say, okay, here are some thematic things that are happening. Here are some, you know, patterns that I see. Um, and I was able to also kind of make some revisions toward the, the collection. Um, in particular, um, you noted that there are these sort of meditations on objects and things. Um, And so the titles of all of the poems are like a single noun, Uh, but that wasn't always the case. I ended up changing some of the earlier poems titles to fit with that um, so that I could begin to see what, what this might look like as a book. Yeah, that's interesting. That's a question that I'd had um, in reading (laughs) of the book is I know that, a lot of these poems have been published widely in magazines for 
like five plus years. And like you said, many, um, almost all of the poems are titled after objects or animals um, in like one or two words, though it seems like most of the animals are gathered together in part four. And I wondered if that was connected to a process of composing a collection and trying to think about narrative or readerly arc, um, and also whether the poems did arise in service of the collection or from disparate seeds. Uh, right. So the earliest poems in the collection, I'm just going to flip to my table of contents here. I can tell you which poems I wrote um, like years and years before the, the book itself came to be. Uh, the poem Baby is a very early one. Um, the poem Death. Some of these that are, are super early. Um, June. A lot of the pieces actually in the um, what's unofficially the, the depression section are older. And so they originally had different titles, or many of them did. And um, I did not write them with this vision in mind. But as I began to sort of pull a collection together, um, then the poems, the, the drafting process also became in service to, you know, be, began to be in service to the collection as well uh, and the titling process as well. Um, yeah, I ultimately, I'm not sure whether the book conveys really an arc necessarily, but what what ended up happening is the book started with a different title. It went through really three titles. It started as a whole different collection. And over the years, as I submitted the work, I was able to strengthen it and, you know, call some poems out and add some new work. And as I did that, a joke that I had with my friends was that, my my elevator pitch, you know, or whatever, if people said, what is your book about? I'd be like, oh, sex, depression, animals. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, the, the joke became like, but what if I titled it that? <laughs> um, and then I kind of fell in love with that idea. And so, of course, that went into my process of ordering the pieces. Um, and in particular... Uh, putting those those animal pieces together and sort of informally having the opening section be representative of the sex poems and the middle section be representative of the depression poems. But yet another joke that I have is when I was trying to sort of separate them into these groups, like every poem is a depression poem. <laughs> um, they could all be in that section. But then they're also kind of all animal poems in different ways uh, and so forth. So there's a lot of overlap, but I tried to be faithful to that progression. And it's interesting. Uh, a lot of the poems do have to do with the possibilities of multiple readings. Um, and so it makes sense that the, the title would participate in that play too. Um, I was interested in how sex and depression could be read as nouns in a series with animals, but they could also be read as modifiers. Um, and I, I, there's a lot in the collection too that, that plays with language and the oddities of linguistics. 
and also posits some kind of relationship between language and physical bodily autonomy. Um, I wondered how you were thinking about linguistic studies or methods or questions as you were writing. Yeah, um, linguistics overall is like a field that I'm really interested in and also deeply amateur at. Um, I had an opportunity to take a couple of linguistics um, centered courses during my graduate studies, Um, but I'm by no means an expert. And so I'm really just kind of fascinated by what language can do, language as performative. Um, Things like speech acts are really interesting to me, for example. And thinking about how language can, if you're reading a work that's on the page, how can I make the words, whether visually or sonically or in some other way, how can I make them perform or be iterative of the content that I'm talking about? Mm, That's an interesting question. And I wonder, in service of this question, um, I wondered if we could read Ship aloud and think about language play from the perspective of this poem. Absolutely. Ship. Maybe we find ships romantic because that word is both a noun and a verb. I once took a trip on a cruise with an Olympic-sized pool that floated flats above the sea. Then my grandmother and I took a ferry to the shore to look at gardens. Her blood sugar dipped low and she forgot what to call the flowers or the city we were in Oslo. She kept asking, are we doing the right thing? Now her thoughts trail behind me like awake. I keep on crossing. Other nouns that are verbs, sink, treat, wish. Maybe I want an out of body experience like hers. Beam, blossom, fathom, lure. Even when you and I fall asleep holding hands, I still drift away, I flatsome. I smell the stems, the floating leaves, a vase of my grandmother's, even though it sits empty. And you say it's okay to cut some things away from their body. I'm at the edge of a pier before morning, reeling and casting. I think, how often has the vessel of this body been filled up to its lip, buoy, slip? Thank you. I'm so drawn to this poem because, or for many reasons, but in part because it includes anecdote and story, the memory, and also the maybe I want, in addition to the linguistic play. And I I wondered what you can share about your relationship with this poem and its process of becoming. Yeah, this is also a pretty, in in some ways, this is also a pretty early poem um, from the collection, or it started out, pieces of it were written when I was an MFA student 10 to 12 years ago. Um, But those pieces didn't quite all work. 
um, in the in the thing that I created back then. And so in a way, this poem ultimately came together in a process that is kind of more how I write now, where I look at fragments uh, of things that I've written and I see I'm looking for the spark between them. Um, and so it started out with a story, a true story that my grandmother and I went to Oslo, uh, when I was a kid and, um, she had a diabetic episode and while we were ashore by ourselves and, um, forgot who she was and everything. <laughs> and so <clears throat> I was maybe nine at the time and I had to get us back to the ship and um, so there was that, that sort of nugget of, of narrative. And then there was this other nugget of narrative. Um, I love to kind of read and research things. Um, I love a weird fact. And one weird fact that I'd fallen in love with was the fact that um, otters will sleep holding hands so that they don't drift away from each other in the water. And I desperately wanted to write a poem with that in it. But each time I tried to kind of include the whole fact, it didn't hit. So, um, and then finally, the last thing was I had another kind of little draft thing, an old poem that was called Hospital Flowers. And it was about um, the smell of the hospital flowers, like when you go into a, a hospital or a flower shop in a hospital, there's a very, or a hospital room that has flowers, there's a very, very specific smell and one that I can't stomach anymore. Um, and so I had all of those little nuggets. I didn't necessarily imagine them becoming part of one poem, but once I added the connective tissue of this concept of the nouns that are verbs. Somehow that thread started to pull it all together. But the process is kind of just, you know, I take little fragments either from old drafts or from my notebooks, uh, now mostly in my notebooks, and literally cut them out and set them next to each other on like my desk and look for what seems to speak to what, even though, and, and ideally something that speaks to something else, but I don't know why, um, and see what happens if I put those together. And thinking about the speaker, of course, binds many of the poems, all of the poems together, this lyric I, um, although there, I'm interested in in, in the uh, ways in which this I is illusory, um, and and you've spoken a little bit about this process of composition and how it is deeply personal and can be grounded in sensory memory. Um, but the first person speaker at the end of Ghost is a ghost itself or herself, um, and that poem is a series of definitions of or of things that equal ghosts, um, including the eye of the poem. And I, that moment was so devastating to me <laughs> because we 
been through this. Um, so many moments and so many impressions with the speaker. Um, and then there's a, a little bit of a, a glimpse into the speaker's sense of itself um, as, a, as a sort of mist. And I wondered how you think about the speaker of this collection or uh, the lyric eye generally in your work. Yeah. Um, so a lot of my work is at least foundationally autobiographical. That's true. Um, and definitely I pull a lot of these, what I've been calling nuggets from just uh, personal experience. But uh, there's a wonderful um, essay by Dorothea Lasky. Um, it's called The Metaphysical Eye. And I think there's another part to the title. But in this essay, she talks about uh, Lorca's concept of the duende. And she really, ta- her thought is that the, the lyric I is, is the matador to the duende. Um, and so it is two powers or two forces sort of wrestling with each other. There's the poem and then there's, there's the speaker who needs to articulate it. Um, and so I, <laughs> I definitely subscribe to some of this, like these more woo-woo ways of thinking about um, poems and their speakers and energy and power too. Um, but I, I wouldn't necessarily say that I hold my own particular theory about the speaker in this collection other than to say she is fractured, you know, she's fragmented in much the same way that a lot of the poems come across and in much the same way that a lot of the poems were written. And I think in a way that's artifice and in a way it's also true to experience. And it it seems like it speaks in some way to uh, a literary network imposing itself on your work or not even imposing itself, but just being present. Um, And I was interested in thinking about all, there's so many influences at work in this collection, of course. Um, But there aren't many literary names dropped in, in the collection, but there is Emily Dickinson um, in the poem Gun. And I wondered if we could read that poem aloud. Yeah, absolutely. Um, This poem is fun to read. Gun. Every time I try to get laid, why does my phone think I'm about to be fired upon? Like, hey, let's duck. Duck. Hang on. Another school year has begun. The stores have bullet-sized tampons. It's hunting season. And yet again, I'm staying out of sight. Float. Dive. You see, the best sex of my life was with a man who just shot blanks. I like the game, but not the risks. I like to play. Wasn't it Dickinson who claimed her life had once gone stiff, had been a loaded gun? Do you think she meant life's a dick? If so, what's death? What's the opposite of a man? 
a woman, a wound, the devil's image. Thank you. This poem is fun, but there's also so much at play. There's bullet-sized tampons, which is a kind of violence. There's um, this thinking about the metaphors we use for, or the euphemisms, I guess, for things like shooting blanks. Um, But there's also influence, autocorrect, and maybe not a a misreading, but something deliberate in in this approach to Emily Dickinson. Um, And I wondered, uh, what is she doing here? Or how did she arrive in this poem that is in so many ways dealing with um, a present moment in language and a present moment in um, interpersonal relationships? Um, How did you... I guess, what would you like to say, <laughs> speaking to this and the different elements at play? Yeah, so um, I'm referring to a particular poem here of Dickinson's, um, and I'm actually like looking it up because I want to just read a tiny section of it. Um, it's a short poem anyway, <clears throat> but it's just titled, uh, after the first line, my life had stood a loaded gun. So the section I was thinking about is just sort of this opening couple of stanzas. My life had stood a loaded gun in corners till a day the owner passed, identified and carried me away. And now we roam in sovereign woods and now we hunt the doe. And every time I speak for him, the mountains straight reply. So I was really fascinated by um, this, this kind of conceit, right? That especially because I just, you know, um, maybe I would think of Dickinson as sort of a, a, a combustible poet. Like there is certainly an explosiveness to her, but I don't often think of her as a, a poet who engages much with violence. Um, and, and I couldn't help, but sort of find it interesting that, you know, throughout the drafting of this poem, I'm playing with the idea of, of guns as like phallic, um, symbols and vice versa and how we use language in casual ways um, or even accidentally to reinforce this connection. And I, and I just found it so interesting that Dickinson had positioned herself in this poem as the gun, um, this bit of a loaded gun that was kept still stuffed in a corner until, you know, this, this hymn, the master, um, carries her away. Uh, and I, you know, I, I think we read that as a religious reference, um, the, the owner, the hymn as sort of a deity. Um, but I just thought, she's got to be in here somewhere because what is going on there? And, and so I, it just came out of me sort of literally asking myself the question, why, why would she say her life was a loaded gun? And then like my snarky reply to myself is 
did she mean that life is a dick? Um, of course, you know, I don't think that is what she meant, but, but it is what I mean, you know? Sure. And in this willful um, recalibration of language and the way we use language is something that recurs throughout the collection. Um, and, and it manifests in some poems as erasure, as theme or subject, um, but also as technique. There is girl, which is a literal erasure, and the breakup, which is a long poem that looks like erasure, but doesn't explicitly name itself so, I don't think. Um, and I wondered what you can share about erasure as a tool of composition or thought experiment, um, or I guess maybe a theme binding poems in this collection. Um, so a note about the sections of the breakup, the way it works, um, which I found it really interesting that, um, I kind of thought it would be self-evident, but, but actually a lot of folks who I've talked to didn't specifically see what was happening with them. Um, so basically in the breakup, there's a, a line that begins the poem. There's the first line of the poem or the section rather. And then that line is copy and pasted directly beneath itself, however many times. And then from there, the way I made um, the pieces look the way they do is just by whiting out, um, like with white font, um, sections of each line so that I could create a kind of trickle down fragmented narrative in each section. That's really interesting. I, and I see it now looking at it and <laughs> thinking about uh, it is a self erasure in this way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and that's why um, the spacing is, is unusual because um, you're seeing the original position of each letter with the erasure going around it. Yeah. Um, Do you want to read just maybe the first page of the the first stanza of the breakup? So our listeners hear uh, a version of what this looks like. Yeah, of course. The breakup. Remembering the sensation of his hands, my spine shivers. He spins me in a hive and the sensation I remember is an ember in pine. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So it's interesting. There's a sort of rhyme that arises out of out of this um, method that you've used because you are reusing the sounds from the first line. That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's a really fun... So here's what I'll say. It's not specifically about erasure, but it's also in some ways about the erasures in this book. Um, I have kind of two modes of writing. I've talked about this um, before with folks. One mode is what I might call the regular mode of writing, where I am drawing from personal experience and kind of trying to piece together some theories or philosophies or what have you, um, or work through them. Um, and then the other mode would be like, I need something that is, that I think of as play. It's not that it's easier to write than, um, a regular quote unquote poem, but it's more like a puzzle instead of an emotional, um, labor. (laughs) And so I find different ways of undertaking side projects or sometimes like in this case, things that become part of, of central projects that are engaging with that kind of play um, where I just find it interesting and there's not as much underlying you know, that's based coming from personal experience. Um, I mean, sure, I've been through a breakup, but this this piece does not necessarily represent um, any of the real breakups that I've been through, though in some ways it's representative of all of them. And I hope in some ways it's representative to any breakup that anybody's ever been through. Um, but it's more like the excitement for me is to find the story that I can find within this story. Well, part of what's so stunning about this collection is the multiple modes of poetry um, present a lot of possibilities for poetry and, and, and different things that poetry can be a vehicle for. Not that poetry always has to have a use in that way, but there are poems in this collection that seem oriented toward memory, autobiography, um, imagination, catharsis. But then there's also this language play that services and resurfaces. Um, and, and you're speaking about the different, your different modes of writing, I think in part answer this question, but I wondered how you think about poetry conceptually um, as, a, as an interpersonal act or as a, as a tool for communication. Hmm. Yeah. It's a big question. How, what is, how do I think about poetry as a tool for communication? Well, I think that, um, in some ways you, you might even argue actually that all forms of art, although I'm not going to, um, wade in that deep right now, but I'm going to certainly say that at its core, what I see Um, in poetry is an impulse toward metaphor where we want to 
locate a sameness of some kind. And um, that doesn't always end up appearing as like a traditional uh, literary capital L metaphor. There are other ways that we might draw comparisons, you know, and look for samenesses. But I think that 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 is the main way in which a poem communicates by by showing something that um, can sort of immersively, sensationally be um, relatable. And I think that we all deeply, as human beings, need to feel relatable and related to. So, um, so I think, yeah, when I read poems, you know, by other people, that's the power, one of the powers for me. Is to locate the sameness and to, and to locate this common space. Yeah. And just, I mean, and it's not all just, you know, a sameness of experience, but it's like a sameness of, of, the shared mind, you know, a sameness of the cosmos, um, like a, a deep, deep sameness, um, a molecular sameness that really fascinates me. You know, I mean, it's like, it's like, (laughs) it's like our, our woo woo version of string theory. And it's, it, it seems like some of the poems, they deal, of course, in, in locating sameness, but also simultaneity of different meanings or explanations, um, simultaneity of difference. And I, one poem in particular struck me as um, enacting that type of simultaneity, and that's Bathtub. And I wondered if we could hear that poem aloud, too. And I should mention one thing about this poem, Bathtub. Um, If you were looking at the piece, there are some lines that are italicized. um, And those are actually pulled from the historical record of of the oracle at Delphi and prophecies that the the various oracles over time gave. Bathtub. For a while... Hardly anyone touched me. At Delphi, no one could agree whether the oracle spoke gibberish or intelligibly. I did not have to worry about finding orange lipstick on my teeth or whether I was clean, shaven. I did not need to argue over the semantics of date and please. I count the grains of sand on the beach and measure the sea. Yet tonight, as I light the pink quartz candle next to my bathtub, as I'm silently wondering about the size of my nipples and the fact that I still wear a belly button ring, no one knew whether the male priests had to interpret her prophecies. I'm also wondering why lately people always touch me on the elevator and at parties and bars why men always graze my arm with their fingers asking what each of my tattoos means troubles unlooked for shall vex thy shore also the serpent 
coming behind thee. On my arm, there's a bee, a cat with two rose eyes, a girl wearing a bare skin. And on my finger is a simple black compass or the helm of a ship or the symbol for chaos. Tell the emperor he no longer has his house, nor mantic bay, nor prophetic spring the water has drained. But which one, the men keep asking, as if it can't be all three. Beautiful, thank you. The stanza where this poem lands is so striking to me, how this question of whether an image can hold three meanings or gesture in three directions And it seems like many of the poems here land in a place that says, yes, it can be all three. Right. And I mean, what's fun about or what what I found fun about sort of writing the end of this particular poem is that on the one hand, you have the narrative of the tattoo and whether it's a compass or a ship's helm or the symbol for chaos. But then you also have these lines uh, from from the oracle tell the emperor that he no longer has his house, nor Mantic Bay, nor prophetic spring. And so even as you read the last lines, but which one the men keep asking, um, they apply in a sort of dual way. Um, So, yeah, I think that complexity and understanding or sort of not understanding, but wrestling with complexity is really at the heart of what drives me to write poems. And I really feel like uh, something I say to my students a lot, um, and this is just my poetics, you know, I know that there are many poets who would disagree, but for me, if a poem ultimately has only one way of being read or only one mode of meaning, um, then it's a failed poem. It should mean many things and it should, it should sort of reflect and refract like a diamond does. Um, because I think that that's true to life and language and words themselves on on an atomic level. Yeah. And just to the the ambiguities that we have to navigate as human beings every day when we try to communicate, when we um, try to, you know, express ourselves, whatever the case may be. Um, And when we try to figure out how we feel about things there's never just the one, you know, angle of light there. And this poem too, of course, we're talking about language, we're talking about history, we're talking about relationships between women and men. Um, We're also talking about tattoos, and many of the poems are talking about tattoos, Um, both the speaker's tattoos and the tattoos on other other bodies that she interacts with. and and the bee tattoo is present in this poem, and then also I think gets its own poem, which is titled Bee. Let's hear that poem. While I'm flipping for it, an interesting fact. Oh, here she is. Um, 
the poem wasn't originally titled B. Um, yeah, that's that's my fun fact. <laughs> B. I go out to get tattooed. A serpent, a bear skull, it doesn't matter. I wait for the brief prick of needle to bone. Pain doesn't ask you to think about it. A steady hum, like a swarm, it swells into heat gathered up from each sting. Simple and dazzling, it renders me a hollow thing, a bright and present halo. Thank you. Um, I'm interested to know about the poem's history with its title, and it's maybe important to note that I think this poem sits with all the other animal titles, or maybe they're not all animal titled poems, but there's many. Um, and perhaps the tattoo itself is not the bee, but the act of tattooing is an interesting question. Um, but I'm curious about this poem in relationship with other poems where tattoos exist. And there is a poem titled Tattoo, but that poem is devoted not to the speaker's own experience with tattoos, but to a story about an uncle's tattoo. Um, but animals and tattoos are seem to be in some relationship with each other and also with bodily autonomy which is also bound to sex. And I wondered how you think about these things informing each other across the space of this collection. Sure. Um, well, so for starters, the, the simple answer is uh, most of the tattoos I have do represent animals um, or something animal related. Like I have a longhorn skull, for example. Um, and then, yeah, just a lot of, of animal stuff and, and some floral stuff too, but mostly as like a compliment <laughs> to the fauna. Um, and so that's part of it. Um, I love animals. And so, and I, I mean, that's like animals are the great love of my life. Um, however, basic white girl that may be, I, I truly, I can't change it. That is I, I, since I was a little girl, I've loved animals more than anything. Um, and I, so I wanted to sort of engage with, um, that and on my body and in my work. Um, and as you pointed out, like the act of marking one's body, especially in a permanent way is, um, an act of agency and an act of bodily autom autonomy. Um, and, and so there's a sense of control there that you don't often have when you feel very much like the animal that you are. <laughs> um, and, and in my case, you know, the, the two things that sort of make me feel the most feral tend to be romantic encounters and, um, depressive episodes. So, um, thinking about how we can, how I can harness the, the power of the animal spirit in, in a way to take control of myself, you know, and to exercise autonomy, um, rather than 
giving in to that feralness, I think is part of the question. Um, but it's something I haven't really thought about in these terms before. So, I mean, I'm really fascinated by the whole concept of it. Um, and then in this case, like with this particular poem, it's just that the, the way it all started to come together um, is that if you've ever gotten a tattoo or been in a tattoo shop, you know that um, the, the guns they use make a very, very loud buzzing sound. And um, that can be disconcerting to someone who doesn't have tattoos uh, yet or ever. Um, And so I made this kind of funny connection when I I have this B tattoo is like in the crook of my elbow, um, on the inside of my elbow, whatever that's called. Um, And so as the gun was sort of making the B... Um, it was like as if I was getting stung there. Uh, and then I realized, too, that every time I would get blood drawn in the future, uh, they'd be drawing it from these veins through the bee. Um, <laughs> which has, in some cases, had very poor uh, outcomes. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> well, it is such a vulnerable space on your body. And I'm thinking, too, about what you mentioned earlier, this sort of sense of the, the literary conversation um, being present in these pieces, because just a funny fact about my second manuscript that I'm working on, there's a poem in the second manuscript uh, that has just a couple of lines in it that... Um, if I can remember them exactly, something like, um, when I wrote a poem for class that said, pain doesn't ask you to think about it, why did my teacher write back, maybe that's all pain asks? So the simultaneity continues. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and it seems like, I mean, publishing books of poems is such a strange project because it seems like it has an anti-relationship with time. Um, These are poems that it seems like you've written many of them years ago or revised them across years into different bodies of work. um, And they've shifted and their titles have shifted and maybe they've maybe some have folded into each other. I don't know. Um, But you publish this book now and spend all this time now talking about it and thinking about the book's reception and publicity and and these things. But of course you have another project um, happening at the same time too. So I I just wondered, um, I mean, it is your first book. Has publishing the collection affected the way that you think about time and poetry and and writing? or I guess, and what what relationship does this collection have with your your current projects? I mean, it's interesting because I did have quite a long process of submitting versions of of the book, um, revising it significantly, multiple times um, over a number of years, and ultimately, um, 
also was sort of moving on, you know, to other things, knowing that I was writing some work that wasn't going to fit in this book and that I was grateful for because, um, you know, it also wanted to kind of keep pushing myself forward. And so, you know, the book ultimately was picked up and then there was a year of the, the press doing its thing before uh, it was actually released. And so by the time it came out this last March, I did feel in a way very far from these poems, but in a nice sense, because it was like refreshing to look back at them and, you know, to have that experience of like, oh, this one's pretty good. <laughs> um, so I'm kind of grateful that I feel this renewed interest in the pieces as I have the opportunity to read and talk more about them publicly uh, rather than feeling like totally sick of them because I've gotten a little bit of space from that deep revision process and a little bit of space from um, yeah, just obsessing over them. And at the same time, there is that feeling of like, but where is my heart right now? And what is representative of me and my, um, my kind of intellectual journey? I'm not sure if intellect is the right thing. Emotional, um, psychological. Um, and these poems, I think like anyone's writing, they are representative of a time that is not now. And, and so another way in which I, I see the kind of multiplicity emerge from the collection is that each of these poems is sort of a different self. Um, and, and that's going to be true of the next book too, which in some ways is very different, but in some ways is engaging with my same thematic obsessions, just in very different ways formally and, um, and yeah, I guess content-wise, extending into um, so so you're you're saying that you're extending the same sort of poetic preoccupation into new formal territories, right? So I mean, the things that I probably will never be able to let go of are an interest in multiplicity and complexity. Uh, an interest in language as performative, a deep interest in the, this is going to be probably the most like insufferably poetic thing I ever say, but a deep interest in um, the liminal space between desire and suffering. Um, those will never not appear in my work, I imagine. So so they're very present in what will become my second book. But, um, but this book deals a lot with, for example, you know, elements of adolescence, especially some from childhood. Um, and I think that the second book is much more grown up, but also 
less personal in some ways. It, there are a lot of ekphrastic poems, for example, that are sort of asking questions by looking at works of art um, rather than always turning to uh, experience of the speaker. That sounds really lovely. I, I will look forward to reading your next book. Um, hopefully not in a matter of too many years. <laughs> I hope not. Yeah. I'm, I'm, you never know with publishing. <laughs> you never know. But I do think I'll have probably a um, something ready um, to at least start uh, sending around within the next year, I'd say for sure. So that's encouraging. Yeah, that's lovely. In closing, um, and maybe this speaks to how your processes and preoccupations have extended through this book into your next project. Um, what mantra is guiding your work right now? What mantra is guiding my work right now? I have so many mantras that I use throughout the day. Um, but there's one that I love. Um, I think it comes from like a Buddhist tr- tradition, um, but but I just initially read it from another poet. Um, it's really a prayer. May all sentient beings have happiness and the causes of happiness. May all sentient beings be free from suffering and the causes of suffering. May all sentient beings never never be separated from the happiness that knows no suffering. Uh, I think that the struggle with those words not being true, <laughs> that's... that's um, probably what guides my writing right now and maybe always has. That's lovely. Um, Thank you so much for your time today, Mag. Um, And thank you to our listeners for joining us um, to talk about sex depression animals, which is available. um, And we'll link to it in the show notes. Um, But thank you, Mag. Thank you so much, Anna. This was an awesome conversation.